All right. Um, well, welcome back to our podcast, um, a, must, a Mustard Seed Project. Uh, today, we're in the second part of our series where we're trying to, again, capture and share insights on vocational paths that cultivate human flourishing. Um, we're, we're three Stanford college guys about to graduate, and we're just looking for some seasoned professionals um, that can help us understand how we should approach a Christ-centered career. And today, we're really fortunate to have uh, the Honorable Judge Fernando Rodriguez from uh, the Southern District of Texas. Um, Judge, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you. And that's a very nice way to put old, uh, seasoned professional. I like that. <laughs> yeah. So let's start from just the beginning. And uh, if you don't mind, can you take us from Harlingen uh, to New Haven and then back to Texas? Um, uh, you know, a couple minutes can't really do justice, but we'd love to just hear the, the broad strokes. Sure. Uh, I grew up in South Texas uh, in a, a town called Harlingen. It's on the close to the border with Mexico and right up against the Gulf of Mexico, so the southern tip of Texas. Uh, obviously, a largely Hispanic community down here in, in what we call the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, so I Went to high school at the public schools in Harlingen, uh, and he was, was fortunate enough to be admitted to Yale University. I was the first person in my family to have the opportunity to go to a four-year college. Uh, so it was uh, certainly uh, uh, an opportunity that I couldn't pass up, uh, and I took it and just had a tremendous time in, in New Haven uh, at Yale University, studied history there. It really was an eye-opening experience because I had not traveled much, had not really had uh, too much exposure to uh, uh, sort of the, the diversity of, uh, of opinion, people, and cultures that you find at a large university. Uh, so it was uh, quite a learning experience that, that I really treasured both in and out of the classroom. Uh, when I uh, was getting to be a senior at university, uh, I started thinking about what I wanted to do uh, after graduating. Uh, I certainly wanted to come back to Texas because that's just the way Texans are. Uh, we we must, uh, want to come back as soon as we can. Uh, and, and so I began to think about uh, what I wanted to do. Law school was certainly one of the uh, possibilities that I considered, uh, but I did want to take some time to uh, take a little bit of a break uh, from studying and also perhaps have the opportunity to uh, serve in a community uh, similar to the one that I grew up in. And so I decided to apply and was accepted uh, to Teach for America in Houston, Texas. So I came back to Texas to uh, work as an elementary school teacher in the bilingual program in the Houston uh, public school system. And I did that for three years and that got me back uh, down to uh, my home state. Great. Um... So after Teach for America, I, I, did you go straight to UT Law? Correct. So I taught for three years in the public school system in Houston. And during that time, I applied to the UT Law School uh, and was admitted. And so I uh, entered law school, I must have been in 1994. Gotcha. And did you kind of know that you were headed that direction and even as you were applying to TFA? I did. I mean, I, I had always had uh, an interest in in law, uh, even from, from high school, and just sort of uh, always found it 
uh, interesting to read about and talk about and discuss issues of public policy and of laws. Uh, certainly thought that laws matter. Uh, the substance and application of, of the law makes a difference to people all across the country and affects people's everyday lives. And, and so I knew that I wanted to uh, spend some of my career uh, in that area. Uh, but coming or as I approached my senior year at Yale, I did also have a desire to take a little bit of a break uh, from studying and have that opportunity to serve. And so that's what led me to Teach for America ultimately. Uh, but even as I did Teach for America, uh, certainly uh, I did have the view uh, that at some point I would go to law school. Got it. Yeah. And, you know, to, to shift into matters of the law, you had uh, quite a diverse set of legal experiences. Uh, first, um, doing a clerkship and then moving into corporate practice at Baker Botts, uh, where you became partner. Uh, but then you also went into the nonprofit world for almost a decade at IJM and now uh, in the public sector or interest as a federal district court judge. So do you mind taking us through some of the highlights and lowlights of each of those? Um, a lot of incoming law students are really trying to parse through where they might belong. And it would be really great to hear from someone who's kind of gone through each of those for a pretty significant amount of time. Sure, I can do that. The, uh, the practice of law, in part, is uh, quite remarkable in that there are so many ways that you can uh, practice uh, as an attorney, uh, both from just the litigation versus the transactional side, administrative law, uh, but even within litigation, uh, just the real breadth of areas that you can focus in. So while my experience uh, includes the big law with the Baker Boss and then the nonprofit world and now on the bench, uh, yeah, there's just sort of a multitude of ways that uh, anyone can, can use their law degree, and I think it's a tremendous degree to obtain because of that. Uh, but from my experience, uh, starting with sort of the, the big law experience, uh, Baker Botts, I worked at Baker Botts up in Dallas for about 11 years. Uh, and uh, I think that the, the highlight when you think about working at a large law firm uh, is, is certainly the intellectual challenge uh, and the uh, the need to always be learning uh, at a very high level. Uh, you are working on uh, high-stakes litigation. Uh, typically, opposing counsel uh, is, is very good or excellent. Uh, and so it becomes a, a real challenge uh, academically, intellectually, uh, to try to present uh, your client's position uh, in the best way possible to, to succeed on behalf of your client uh, in, in all types of cases. So when I was there, I was able to work on uh, patent litigation, patent infringement actions, uh, sort of standard breach of contract actions, uh, matters uh, involving regular tort actions, uh, complex litigation, class actions. So every type of lawsuit forces you to learn the new industry or the industry of your client, uh, but also uh, the area of law. And, and while you become uh, more learned uh, over time in certain areas and become 
uh, perhaps uh, or develop more of an expertise in a particular area, uh, there's always something more to learn. Uh, laws are always changing and court decisions are always coming out. So if you're curious, if you like the process of learning, uh, it's a tremendous place uh, to just always uh, remain uh, stimulated intellectually uh, in that environment. Uh, and certainly, uh, one of the other big benefits is, is it's also very financially rewarding, uh, and that's obviously a big attraction. Um, I think the couple of uh, sort of uh, low light, as you call it, but just some of the things to, to count the cost uh, when you consider big law uh, is one, uh, that it is very demanding, uh, time-wise in particular, uh, especially when you uh, throw in the need to travel quite a bit. Uh, most of these lawsuits involve witnesses from different states across the country, perhaps even internationally. So it often entails quite a bit of travel, quite a bit of time uh, away from home, uh, in addition to just sort of long days. Uh, so you have to uh, personally make that decision that you're uh, in a place that you want to dedicate that amount of time to be excellent at your profession. Uh, and I think, uh, secondly, especially I, I tell this to the young associates who are considering, or young lawyers who are considering uh, joining a big law firm, uh, while it is uh, overall always very uh, challenging and rewarding, you'll also find yourself uh, at times on, on fairly mundane kind of endeavors that you get stuck on a document production review uh, where you're reviewing document after document for a couple of months, uh, looking for that uh, sort of needle in the haystack, uh, those are not the most exciting days. Uh, but it's something that has to be done, and it's usually done by the younger associates. So that's just part of the price you pay to sort of advance and become more seasoned uh, as a litigator. I think moving to the nonprofit world, uh, as Donna mentioned, uh, I joined International Justice Mission uh, in 2010, and I worked there for eight years, three and a half years in, in Bolivia, and five and a half or five years in the Dominican Republic. Uh, so a nonprofit that works in the area uh, of human rights, uh, in particular in Bolivia, uh, we helps the government fight cases of child sexual assault against uh, minor, against children. And in the DR, uh, the focus was on the fight against the uh, human trafficking uh, of minors, in particular for commercial sexual exploitation. Uh, so to me, the, the highlights from that type of, uh, of work, especially with a, an organization like IJM, which is a faith-based organization, a Christian organization, uh, certainly uh, personally as a Christ follower, uh, I think what really resonated was that you're part of a team that is pursuing a, a compelling mission, right? That aligns with your faith, uh, with my faith, uh, and really motivated us to, to do what we were trying to do, which is to, to help people, help the most vulnerable, and try to make the, the system as a whole, the public justice system, work more effectively for the poor, for the disenfranchised, for the vulnerable. Uh, that's very meaningful. That brings a lot of satisfaction uh, at a personal level when you know that what you're doing is really impacting lives, uh, making a difference, rescuing people who are being exploited and helping to obtain justice for them. Uh, so that's a, a tremendously motivating uh, experience. 
I think the the low light from that type of work uh, is that in, in whether it's development work or the type of work that IJM does, uh, it can be very frustrating uh, because there are many factors that are beyond your control. Uh, it is change is very slow. In particular, the work with IJM, which focuses in developing countries, the systems are broken. Uh, that's why IJM chooses to work there to try to improve broken justice systems or justice systems that are very weak. And so trying to change them at a structural level is very hard, uh, takes a lot of time. Uh, you have a lot of setbacks or very slow progress, and, and that can make uh, for many moments of frustration. Uh, and so just wondering, is anything ever really going to change? And it takes a lot of perseverance to get through those moments. Uh, I think, uh, and then sort of to close it out, uh, from my current experience here on the bench, uh, certainly uh, overall fascinating uh, position. Uh, I truly enjoyed uh, the position that I have now uh, as a federal judge. Uh, you know, in many ways, it is uh, sort of the culmination professionally uh, of my career, and, and I cannot imagine a better way to spend the rest of my career than here on the bench uh, in, in Brownsville, Texas. Uh, it is meaningful in the sense that I know that I'm part of trying to uh, make the public justice system, whether on the civil side or, or on the criminal side, work effectively, uh, be accessible to everybody, uh, and ensure that everybody gets their voice heard and that the correct decisions are being made. Uh, so there's a lot of personal satisfaction in having a part of that process. I think uh, there haven't really been many low lights, and I truly enjoy the position. I would say that the one thing I, I do miss uh, from my time in particular with IGM, but also my time with Baker Botts, is uh, being on the bench and from, from my perspective here, uh, there's less of a sense uh, of team motivated by a compelling mission. Right? So in, in the civil litigation context, you're part of a team that's trying to win on behalf of your client. And that's very easy to, to measure the win or the loss. IJM, uh, very similar, uh, part of a team that has this compelling mission to help the vulnerable uh, and, and the poor and to change entire systems. Uh, here on the bench, really, my um, that there's less of a sense of a win or a loss. Uh, uh, my job is to get the law right and to apply it uh, correctly, uh, irrespective of who wins or loses. Uh, I just see the facts before me. I apply the law fairly, consistently. Uh, and then the results are what they are based on, on that application. So when I issue a ruling, uh, from my perspective, uh, for me, uh, I don't win or lose. Uh, it's just part of my job, and, and I'm trying to do it as best as I can. So I don't have that sense of, of working together on a team to achieve uh, a certain mission or objective uh, like I did when I worked for IJM or for Baker Bots. Got it. And, you know, to mention team, um, you've also had time to work with a lot of lawyers across your career. And it's often been said that the legal profession is the most unhappy profession uh, out of all in the States today. Um, in your view, what makes for a happy lawyer? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think uh, 
there's sort of probably two two facets uh, uh, to that that question. Sort of as a person, uh, what makes for a happy lawyer uh, goes well beyond what that lawyer does in the practice of law. Uh, so the, the practice of law for a lawyer is only part uh, of his or her life. Uh, and, and what brings personal satisfaction uh, obviously entails well, what's going on with the entire uh, person, the entire, the, the, all the aspects of life for that individual. So I know that for me and, and for many of the lawyers that, that I've known uh, over my career, uh, who are satisfied, who are happy, uh, who are joyful, right? it, it comes from uh, having uh, sort of uh, everything in order, right? That, that starts with your family, it starts with yourself, certainly if you're a Christ follower, uh, then, then sort of ensuring that your personal relationship uh, with, with God and Christ is robust and, and is meaningful, uh, that uh, you're in community uh, with, with a local church or in, in, within your own community uh, serving. Uh, so all of those have to be in place. Uh, if if your life is uh, consumed uh, or, or almost wholly only the practice of law, uh, that, that to me at least seems a little bit out of balance uh, and ultimately uh, will not lead to uh, a personal satisfaction. Uh, now, you sort of limited to well, what about just within the practice of law what makes for a lawyer who is satisfied or content with the type of law that, that he or she practices uh, i think a fundamental um sort of factor is are you helping the people that you want to help and that that is uh that varies right so for some people that may be, you know, what I really want to, uh, the people I really want to help uh, are those who are accused of a crime, uh, but may not have very strong representation to defend themselves. Uh, and so if, if that's really what, what drives you, uh, if those are the, the people that you feel a passion to defend, then obviously that, that should uh, lead you to do work on the criminal defense side, whether it's a public defender or, or private practice, uh, but you don't want to go be a tax lawyer. If that's really what your passion is. Uh, on the other hand, if if your passion is uh, the protecting the community through the strong enforcement of law, then that, that will more lead you toward the prosecution side uh, or working for uh, corporations and sort of helping the economy through. Uh, the enforcement of patent law, whatever it may be, right? but figure out, you know, why are you in law? Who do you really want to help? And then figure out a way to, to help those individuals. And if that's what you're doing, ultimately, lawyers help people solve problems, uh, whether it's getting a deal done and a deal done in a way that benefits your, your corporate client or perhaps someone who's buying a property uh, or whether it's uh, criminal defendants or on the prosecution side, that you're helping somebody who has some type of a legal problem. And if you identify who it is that you really want to help and, and find ways to place yourself in a position to help them, you're going to get a lot of satisfaction out of that. Thank you so much, uh, Judge Rodriguez. I just wanted to um, circle back on your time at the 
idea. Uh, and I think uh, it's, yeah, it's a part of your career that I find um, really inspiring and really interesting. And so uh, just for our listeners, um, yeah, I might not, um, so you, as you explained uh, just now, um, the work that you did in IGM, can you kind of uh, go into more details into what the dynamics are like uh, working uh, in law at an NGO and specifically on uh, social justice issues? Uh, and uh, if, you were, if you could also share uh, the most meaningful case uh, that you worked um, on during your time at, in Bolivia and the DR with IGM. Sure. Uh, I think that the, uh, the dynamics of working uh, within a, a nonprofit organization, uh, certainly in, in development work uh, and on justice issues, uh, probably varies quite a bit between uh, the different organizations. Uh, so, so I can speak to, to my experience with IGM, certainly, uh, and, uh, but, but I think there is quite a bit of, of variation uh, among uh, different organizations. And you sort of have to talk to people uh, who have worked there or had uh, uh, substantial exposure to working with people from that organization. Uh, but, but I think for, for international justice mission, certainly, uh, part of, uh, as I mentioned a little bit before, Part of the dynamics of trying to do the development work, trying to work with an organization like IJM that seeks to effectuate change in public uh, public policy, in justice systems, in developing countries, uh, is that it, it's it's very it's very difficult work. Uh, it requires uh, a lot of moving parts uh, all at the same time. And quite a bit of it involves you being able to influence other stakeholders, right? So with IJM, part of their mission is to help improve the public justice systems in developing countries. Uh, IJM, really no organization, certainly not a nonprofit organization, can bring about those changes uh, by itself. Uh, you have to persuade uh, and lead uh, and work alongside the public ministry, the court systems, the uh, law enforcement side, the public health uh, system, social services, all of them have to work together to really bring about uh, an improvement in the overall public justice system that protects everybody, that brings about justice for everybody. Uh, that's very hard work, uh, and it takes uh, a very long time uh, to bring about that change. Uh, I know in, in Cambodia, the IGM experience in Cambodia, uh, there was quite a bit, quite a significant reduction in the commercial sexual exploitation of very young children uh, under 10 years old. Uh, if you go back to early 2000s, late 90s, uh, many uh, children under 10 were being fairly openly sold on the streets for commercial sexual exploitation. That uh, the, the incidence of that is much, much less than it used to be. But it took 15 years, uh, and it took many organizations, uh, and, and it took a lot of perseverance and, and the government support to be able to get there. Uh, so you need just a tremendous amount of perseverance uh, to, to be able to do it. Uh, more on a personal level, uh, for IJM at least, my experience, was a couple of the more most meaningful parts of the culture of IJM uh, is its emphasis on, on spiritual growth. 
because it is a Christian organization, uh, you know, part of the uh, sort of the, the DNA of IJM is to uh, make personal spiritual growth a priority. Uh, that includes starting every day with 30 minutes of stillness, where your job as an employee is uh, to seek the voice of God for that day uh, and to uh, deepen your relationship with God. Uh, every day uh, in most of the offices, some offices do it maybe only a few times a week, but very regularly you meet together as a team uh, and, and pray uh, and study the Bible. Uh, other organizations do that uh, as well, but not all. Uh, and, and certainly for IJM, in my experience, that was tremendously meaningful uh, to know that uh, the, a focus, a priority for IJM was to ensure that the team was together and individually trying to nurture uh, its relationship with, with God. Uh, and, and quickly, uh, most meaningful cases, there's a lot of cases, but, but I'll touch on the first, first conviction in IG in Bolivia was on behalf of uh, a teenage boy who had been uh, sexually abused by uh, a uh, sort of a, a, a friend of the family uh, for, for some period of time uh, until he made an outcry uh, and was found. He was 12, 13 years, years old at the time. Uh, and this was a number of years ago when I first started with IJM. At the time, it was very, very difficult to get a conviction in this kind of case in Bolivia. The system was incredibly backlogged. Uh, the way that the trials were being conducted meant that a trial, if you reached a trial, would take six months to uh, to complete uh, a case from start to finish could easily take five to seven years. So convictions were very rare and, and delays were the norm. Uh, we reached a point in that case where we had one more hearing to finish the trial uh, and we, we had it scheduled for about three weeks out uh, and, and we were hopeful about getting the conviction uh, when the prosecutor told us that uh, she had to leave town uh, for, for quite a while, for a couple of months, and the case would just sort of uh, go into abeyance, uh, would sort of just remain on pause. And our fear was that if that occurred, uh, that uh, the case really would never get started up again. We would have just spent all this time getting to that point and not reach the finish line. Uh, and so we, we prayed uh, and we really sought uh, intervention from God to get this final hearing uh, to actually go forward. We did everything we could to talk to the prosecutor uh, and, and to try to see if she could postpone her trip so that we could just complete this trial, make sure that everybody was there on that day. Uh, and really up until the last moment, we weren't sure what was gonna happen, uh, but you know, at the last moment, she did uh, extend uh, her time, didn't make the trip. Uh, we were able to complete uh, that hearing, and, and we obtained the conviction on behalf of, of that young one. The public, the prosecutor, uh, the way IGN works, we, we work alongside the prosecutor. So the prosecutor uh, obtained the conviction, uh, and the, the man was, was sentenced uh, in that case. Uh, so it was just a tremendous victory because it was very uncertain up until the very last moment whether we were able, we would be able to complete that trial and even get a decision but to actually get a conviction was extremely meaningful to us and, and, and just a cause for a great celebration. 
Yeah, that's really, really inspiring. Yeah, uh, a really, really good uh, case to hear about. Um, and yeah, so I just wanted to also uh, kind of go back, uh, just in fact to your um, the story that you shared about your your last case, where oftentimes in in working at NGOs, uh, sometimes uh, you do get frustrated, as you mentioned, uh, by uh, or like. Um, or NGOs like wait, working in the developing world where like sometimes the systems of law are not as perfect or sometimes uh, you get uh, frustrated with some of these systems. And so uh, just uh, looking around at some uh, nonprofits, we saw that one of the problems uh, is sometimes hiring talent uh, can be a real issue, but we're really um, inspired by how uh, IGM is able to attract a lot of talent in spite of this uh, general notion. So can you kind of go uh, more into detail into um, what's special about IGM's uh, process and culture that, set, that sets it apart to allow it to recruit a lot of people uh, with talent that are able to help it on its mission? Uh, yes, I think uh, I certainly agree that IJM uh, draws a lot of very talented individuals. Uh, I had the opportunity to work with uh, just incredibly talented, smart, uh, driven, motivated uh, people from around the world, uh, both uh, at the headquarters in, in D.C., uh, but also in every field office. Uh, IJM really has been uh, very fortunate to, to attract and, and to maintain a lot of uh, very highly skilled, just excellent uh, professionals from, from across the board. Uh, so how are they able to do that uh, is, is a good question. I, mean, I think the, the mission uh, of IJM is very compelling. Uh, so that attracts uh, a lot of individuals uh, who, who want to be part uh, of that compelling mission uh, you know, to try to, to, to help the vulnerable, to effectuate justice, obtain justice on behalf of, of of the poor uh, and the vulnerable uh, really motivates a lot of people. Uh, I think for lawyers in particular, uh, and so this applied to me, that type of mission and the work of IJM is, is very rare uh, among nonprofit organizations. Uh, it is uh, certainly as I was, when I was uh, looking for different types of opportunities in 2008, 2009, uh, when I was deciding to move away from uh, civil litigation with banker bots into another type of career, there were very few opportunities, certainly uh, with nonprofit organizations, that would make use of my legal career. Uh, and IJM was one of them. Uh, there are uh, a few uh, organizations that do work on public policy that maybe try to write white papers or position statements or influence stakeholders and, and leaders to effectuate uh, changes in the law or things of that nature. But an organization that actually gets in the trenches alongside the prosecutor and law enforcement and uh, social services and works directly uh, with survivors of violence and works directly to obtain a conviction uh, if there are other organizations that do that type of work, uh, they're very few. Uh, and so because of that, I think IJM is able to attract 
uh, you know, almost not quite a monopoly, but, but close to a monopoly on people who are attracted to that type of work. Uh, and I know for me, that was one of the reasons I joined IJM because the other opportunities that I was considering uh, in the nonprofit sector uh, in, in sort of a, a ministry capacity really did not make direct use of my legal career. Uh, and there was a sense of why have I practiced law for 11 years uh, to now sort of leave it behind. IJM allowed me to, to use that. Uh, and, and so that uh, made a huge difference in my decision to join uh, IJM. Uh, and then more from a, from a structural, this may be less of a, of a factor for many people, but it probably is a factor for, for, for some, uh, is that IJM's model uh, is a, it is a ministry but it operates uh, by providing a salary. So you don't raise support. Uh, so I know that many nonprofit organizations, especially among faith-based organizations, uh, the, the people who do the work often have to uh, raise their own support teams uh, and, and sort of develop those support teams, both for, for their personal finances, but also for the ministry itself. Uh, and, and for many people, and I know for, for myself, uh, that if IJM had had that model, I probably would not uh, have been uh, interested in that type of position. So for a number of reasons, and, and, and certainly, uh, you know, my family and I support uh, many people who, who, are, who do have support teams uh, for their ministry, but personally, that, that was not a position that, that I wanted to pursue. Uh, so it made a difference for me. So I think the, the salary model uh, will be attractive to many people, many professionals, uh, that other models perhaps would not be. Um, yeah, so uh, just to kind of conclude this uh, portion on uh, idea of uh, Judge Rodriguez, um, oftentimes, um, especially in, in our conversations um, with, our, with our peers, with our friends, um, we um, some we get this idea that some uh, some people uh, believe that explicitly uh, socially oriented jobs uh, jobs focused on social justice like your role at IGM uh, are more pleasing to God um, than others like such as more uh, corp such as more corporate uh, uh, roles and so uh, can we get can we get kind of your thoughts on that um, and yeah what what do you think about that because uh, we do understand that um, God uh, calls us to different things. Um, different people. God calls different people to different things. So yeah, if you could uh, share your perspective on that, having worked um, in so many different roles, I don't think uh, I certainly don't agree that um, that there are some careers that are more favored uh, by, by God that, than others, or uh, or that uh, God would would call uh, all individuals to. Uh, work in social services or in vocational ministry capacity. Uh, I think that the calling of God is is unique to each individual, uh, and each individual uh, the role or my role is to uh, seek the voice of God uh, for myself and my family, and, and to determine what is the, the career that God wants me to pursue, and, and then uh, whatever I do, do it. Uh, to uh, to bring glory to God, uh, do it with excellence so that it honors God. Uh, and, and that can be uh, working with a corporation, 
Uh, it can be working as a church planner. Uh, it can be working as a pastor uh, or, or in a, an elected position or an appointed position. Uh, so it is uh, less important uh, what the position is. Uh, it is much more important that you are pursuing uh, the career and the path that God has led you to and has equipped you uh, to follow uh, and that you're doing it with excellence uh, so that you represent him well, uh, so that uh, you're doing it as unto him, uh, as some would say. Uh, and just remember that uh, you keep the perspective that ultimately, uh, no matter what career I pursue, uh, my desire is to serve God uh, through this job and through this career. Uh, and I think uh, God will be pleased with your actions. Great. That's really encouraging to hear. Um, to finish off our conversation, we really want to get to what we're really excited to try and uh, explore with you, which is decision-making around your career and risk-taking. Um, there, there are a lot of paths that are seen as conventional um, and safe that are particularly uh, appealing to individuals. But you decided mid-career to leave at Baker Botts, take what I assume to be a fairly drastic pay cut, and actually move uh, with four children to Bolivia. And I assume that had to be a, a fairly difficult decision to make. And we'd like to start off with just how you approached that decision from the, the timeline to kind of the key turning points in, in that whole process. The, uh, uh, it was in 2008, I had been working at Baker Boss for about 10 years. I had uh, really enjoyed my time at Baker Boss, uh, worked with a great group of lawyers, uh, found the job uh, fascinating. Uh, but in 2008, uh, my wife and I did decide that we, we, we had had a desire uh, in each of our hearts that at some point, we would uh, serve in a, an international context. I uh, didn't really know uh, when that would occur. Uh, and it wasn't that part of a good time to start thinking about that uh, because our children were uh, reaching uh, the age of uh, of teenagers, and we didn't want to make that move as teenagers. Uh, so we began to look at different uh, opportunities. I also had a sense that while I enjoyed uh, my time at Baker Botts, as I mentioned, it was very demanding uh, time-wise. And, and there was a part of me that felt it was difficult for me, and, and other lawyers that I knew who were Christ followers uh, were, were able to balance family and ministry and work uh, very well. But for me, I felt that to sort of maintain the appropriate balance for myself between family and ministry at the level that I wanted to minister uh, in, in my community uh, and work, I either had to make my job a ministry itself or uh, I had to look for a career path that would give me a little bit more flexibility in my time uh, to be able to serve more within my community, as well as, as have ample time for my family. So with all those sort of 
factors, we began to look at a lot of different options and possible opportunities. Uh, clearly, the the key uh, sort of decision making factors uh, were what what you would think about. It's you you pray a lot. Uh, you really seek uh, God's voice. Uh, I think the the greater the decision, the more time you should spend in prayer and fasting in really trying to determine, is this God's voice? Uh, am I just trying to seek God for myself? Or is this really where God is leading me? Uh, you get counsel. I mean, the counsel of many, there is great wisdom. So we talked to a lot of the people who were in my life, especially through my local church, uh, about the different opportunities. What do you think about this? Do you think uh, you know, the Bolivia opportunity, uh, how does that sound like to you? Uh, you, you, if you sort of get feedback from individuals, you'll get different responses. And I did sort of receive back from very close friends, uh, some who said, uh, you know, it sounds like a great opportunity, you should jump at it. Others who had more reservations and said, you're involved in ministry here in Dallas, you sort of have uh, some influence, God can use you here. Uh, so you maybe maybe you should stay and just find other ways to minister here. So you know, counsel was was very important, uh, uh, but sometimes it's not uniform, uh, even though it's for people you trust. Uh, and, and then uh, you take the time that's necessary to make sure that you feel peace. And and if you're married, uh, as I was at the time and still am, uh, certainly you make the decision with your spouse. Uh, that there was no. Uh, so my wife, Terry, and I, uh, from the beginning, uh, had decided that you know, whatever decision we made, it was a decision that we were going to make together uh, because it would affect our entire family. Uh, so we knew that before we made a decision, we would both have to have peace about it that this was uh, where God was leading us. Uh, so it took uh, quite a bit of time, uh, probably from beginning to actually uh, accepting the position with IJM from the beginning of looking at different options for well more than a year. Uh, and, and during that time, you're just continuing to serve, continuing to see where you can find ministry in your community, if that's what's important to you and it was to us. Um, and, and so uh, we took the time and, and spent the time in prayer and received counsel and ultimately felt peace about uh, moving to, to Bolivia. Got it. And uh, was, was there any time, especially right after you all moved out to Bolivia where there was a sense of uncertainty about whether it was the right decision? Uh, there were uh, many, many times during that first uh, year in particular where there were there was sort of a sense of, you know, what have we gotten our family into? In particular, because the first year was probably the, the most difficult, not just because of the cross-cultural transition, which in best of times or best of circumstances, would be difficult in itself, but uh, just where we, we had visa problems uh, that, that were significant. Uh, we had a couple of our children get fairly seriously ill. Uh, you know, Terry sort of sprained her ankle uh, pretty significantly, severely uh, early on. So we, there were a lot of these external kind of forces that were uh, sort of made us think, well, this isn't sort of the, uh, the uh, sort of the, the most positive experience. Uh, you know, what, what, what have we done? Uh, but, but we had, uh, the IJM team around us, uh, to sort of encourage us, walk with us. We, we were very fortunate 
in that we found a local church uh, fairly quickly uh, and established community with them. And so they were walking with us through these uh, difficult times. And I think that made a, made a huge difference. Uh, uh, but, but that first year in particular, uh, there were many moments that were difficult uh, when we walked through them. Uh, looking back, uh, we now can, uh, can see that they really kind of shaped us and uh, formed us and God used it, uh, but they weren't easy to get through. Yeah, I can't imagine. So two more questions. Um, the last is sort of going to be our classic for other guests we will have on the show. But the second to last is just around what kind of encouragement you would offer to someone around our age, uh, maybe a bit older, who has maybe spent some years, could be at a management consultant uh, business like McKinsey or investment banking, Goldman Sachs, uh, or maybe just a regular desk job, and really know in their gut they want to do something different. They want to do a startup. They want to go into ministry. They want to go abroad and become a missionary. But are just really struggling to find the courage to kind of go against the current of corporatism. Uh, what kind of encouragement from both your own experience and, and God's word would you offer to that young individual? Yeah, I certainly think that if that's part of your what God has put in you and if, uh, part of your your passion, uh, you know, the, the the short answer would be you know go for it. Right? Uh, this is uh, a great opportunity, and and if you're uh, early on in your career, in particular, uh, it's a great time to uh, take some risk. Uh, we know, uh, and for those of us who are Trump followers, that you know, God is faithful, that you know, He uh, will equip those who call who He calls, uh, that He will uh, care for those He calls. And so, if you're, if you have, if you feel that passion in your heart to to serve in a particular capacity, uh, to to take that. Uh, that big jump, get some counsel, spend time in prayer, uh, and and uh, but if, if if that's in your heart, uh, I think it's a, a tremendous opportunity to put yourself in a position where you have to depend on God, uh, and, and He will always come through uh, to to provide for you, to protect you, and really to help you grow uh, through that process, uh, and, and you'll learn just. Uh, so much uh, about the, the faithfulness of God uh, and, and how he cares for you. Got it. And our last question we're closing with is, what is the decision you made in your 20s that you were most grateful or glad that you made? Yes. Uh, two, two quick answers. Uh, certainly the uh, most important decision that I made was proposing to Terry, my wife. Uh, so... Uh, I did that when I was about 25. Uh, that certainly was hands down the, the best decision and the most important. Uh, we've been married 26 years now. Uh, but, but in addition to that, uh, and really along with her, it was in our 20s that I think we, perhaps not consciously, but uh, just sort of inherently made the decision that no matter where we were, uh, we would seek opportunities to serve in our community. Uh, so when, when we went, when I went to law school, uh, and she was still teaching, uh, when we moved up to Dallas, certainly with IJM, and, and even here in Brownsville, uh, part of our passion, part of our desire is to always seek ways locally to serve, uh, whether it's international students that uh, are far from home uh, and that lived around us when I was 
it, it, when we were in an apartment complex at, at Michi Mall uh, to uh, working in, uh, this was East Dallas in a largely Hispanic community uh, with our local church there in Dallas uh, to obviously work with IJAM. But no matter where we are, I think we made a decision very early on that part of our calling was really it was part of I think calling for, for all of Christ followers to find ways to serve in your community, find ways to help others. Uh, God really uses you through that, but he also uh, does the work in you uh, uh, when you put yourself in that position. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for, for taking the time, Rodrigo, 